That's what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay, now, from the beginning. Welcome to BX, Beyond Stereotypes, a podcast about lawyers using their authentic voices to change the world. The same skill sets that it takes to be able to foster, nurture, sustain a diverse, equitable, and inclusive workplace or team, they're the exact same skills that it takes to be a leader. So now we have this term that's called, that people say, call inclusive leadership. And I wonder to myself, I always ask my clients, is there any other such thing as, (laughs) is there such thing as a leader who isn't inclusive? Welcome to BS, Beyond Stereotypes. I'm your host, Merle Vaughn. Here to BS with me today is Aiko Basia, whose story I find fascinating and who will no doubt inspire all of you to embrace your authenticity. Hi, Aiko. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Merle. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yay. I am so excited to talk to you. There's some great things going on in our country right now that I believe you are the best person for me to BS with about, although there's nothing BS about it. Um, And I'm looking forward to talking to you. So um, just for our audience's um, uh, edification, let me uh, tell them a little bit about you. Uh, Aiko uh, received her undergraduate degree from Smith. She received her JD from UNC Chapel Hill. She started her legal career uh, at a big firm, I believe in in Atlanta, um, and then moved uh, to the city of Atlanta, uh, where she led legal teams, and I think also did some compliance work. She then moved to the Bill and Melinda Gates organization, um, where she did um, compliance work. Uh, Then into DEI and then into coaching and consulting, she is the founder of Rare Coaching and Consulting. Um, And I'm just excited, so excited to talk to you today. Welcome. Thank you. Super excited to be here. So did I leave anything out? I usually do. I, I usually get corrected. So feel free to correct me or add. Uh, No, I think that's fine. They can always find me, right? And probably one thing that might be of interest is that I am the mom of two teenage boys. Yes, that that is um, (laughs) not for the faint of heart. And let me tell you, I I understand that now because my daughter had uh, identical twin sons uh, almost two years ago during the pandemic. And I had never been around boy energy so, and now I have, and so I, uh, I applaud you. How Welcome are they to doing? The club. <laughs> <laughs> How are your boys doing these days? Um, they're doing well considering, uh, all that's been happening in the world, but they are since, uh, COVID they have become two different boys now that they've been able to return back to school. And it's been really great. I think for all of us. That's, that's awesome. That is what, and with the, the twins are under five, so they haven't been um, vaccinated yet. And so oh, that's mm-hmm. still a little concerning, especially 
with you know the relaxing of the uh, masking requirements and everything mm -hmm. uh, but knock on wood so far we've we've uh we've been able to avoid it i probably shouldn't have said that i probably just um jinxed us but fingers crossed well, fingers crossed so let's start with um your story we always start with your story so tell us how where you grew up you know i love to hear about your parents if you want to talk about them um as as diverse folks uh our parents usually play play not that everybody's don't but we usually like to give uh pay homage to our parents so if if that feels good for you feel free sure so i am uh born and raised in spartanburg south carolina and so when we when I was raised, we were poor, pretty poor. And for me, that was a bit of an advantage because I was raised in a household with my mother present. And so my mother is Japanese. So in our household, we were a Japanese speaking household and everything culturally um, that you consider on that end. But the gift that I had was that, you know, usually when you have two parents and one is black and you're not raised with that parent if you have wealth or money you're not going to be raised in a black community so for mm -hmm. me the gift that i had was that i was raised in an all-black community um, went to a title one school so i had the best of both worlds in terms of being just immersed with folks who look like me and feeling connected to my community while at the same time in a household being able to you know being raised and basically an immigrant household where there's a different language spoken and different way of being. And I think that a lot of us who are raised as first generation or immigrants, we pick up a lot on what's going on around us because we're navigating different languages. We're navigating different worlds at all, all times. So you understand everything from, you know, who's an insider and who's othered, who's being treated equitably and who's not. So I think those were all gifts that I got early on. Similarly with going to a Title I school and going over to a, a gifted program once a week, you also saw the difference of how, you know, somebody who was lower income um, and black folks were treated differently from those who have, and in this case were higher income and were majority white. So it was always this way of being able to see uh, the difference in terms of power differentials that had a lot to do with identity. And I think that shaped a lot of how I show up in the world now and my value system and the work that I gravitate towards in the communities that I cherish. And so I wouldn't change any of it for, for anything. Interesting. So tell, tell me what is a title one school? I've never, I've never heard that. So Title I schools are schools that are low income. They receive a lot of government subsidies. Uh, in my case, we, because of the, um, the makeup of the school that I was, uh, I attended uh, in terms of economics, we all received free and reduced lunch or meals. So, yeah, and, and you and I, you know, when we talked earlier, we kind of talked about some of the, the, uh, Things that we have in common. Um, I did not grow up poor. Both my parents were um, uh, teachers in in the in the school district, but I did grow up in Compton. 
which was at the time an all black environment. And I understand entirely uh, what you mean um, by how it, how it shapes and forms you um, to be in that environment. How did you find going to Smith? I mean, that is a huge, <laughs> that's like a 180, right? So certainly a culture shock, but I should say that um, after being in South Carolina most of my life in high school, we relocated to Long Island in New York. And so that was really where I had uh, a big culture shock in terms of, you know, income disparity, uh, just seeing a completely different way of life in terms of north to south, right? And the demographic makeup just looked really different. So I feel like that kind of broke me in before I went to Smith, where when you really think about the um, the income gap and being um, amongst the minority in terms of racially, uh, Smith was certainly an eye opener to, to a degree. I, I appreciated the academic rigor. Uh, and again, it was uh, certainly, you know, finding yourself one of the onlys again was was prevalent during the summer times when I went to had internships I always went back to lower income areas so I did all my inter- internships with the Children's Defense Fund or the Black Student Leadership Network so I actually worked in um in South Central in Compton off of Crenshaw Boulevard my first summer so that's probably familiar to you um then I, I live went- off of Crenshaw Boulevard now well, that's that's where I work I believe the church nearby that we worked at was Avondale or Avalon or something I can't remember it's like a pink church West Angeles Maybe, maybe it was a pink church. It was like you couldn't not notice oh. it. But we uh, did a lot of advocacy work there. And you know, back in um, in that time period, it was a different. It was a different world there. And the next uh, summer was in Oakland at the Acorn. So every summer, I made I took an opportunity to be back in community. That that's great. And so, you know, how did you decide to go to law school? Uh, I think because of a lot of what I shared with you earlier in terms of recognizing people who have power and people who have power exercised over them, being an outsider, recognizing how inequities happen. uh, I think that had a lot to do with it, wanting to have a voice or be able to be a voice for others. That was important. And I think partly also being from an immigrant household where you know, financial security and education are so important and stressed a lot. Uh, either being what a doctor or a lawyer or engineer or something were ways to have financial stability and security. So that had a lot, those both, I think both of those factors had a lot to do with me going to uh, pursuing being an attorney. How did your mom end up in South Carolina? Oh, uh, I guess I skipped over that part. So my mom married my father when she was in Japan. He was in the Marines and my sister was born there. Uh, my brother was born in uh, on a military base in North Carolina, Fort Bragg. And then I was the last to be born. Interesting. Okay. All right. So let's move um, into the present now. Um, <laughs> Uh, and I'm going to give you a chance to talk about uh, your your uh, coaching and consulting business. 
Um, but what's happening right now as we speak is yes. um, the hearing hearings for uh, Katanji Brown Jackson and uh, for the Supreme Court. Um, historic, historic, and yes. I want to hear you know. What is what have you had to deal with? What kind of questions have you had to answer? Um, you know, just tell you know, kind of tell me what's going on in your head uh, around this and in your world around this. So you know what I have to tell you. Um, I think because I'm so clear about my stance and perspective on this, no one's asked me anything. <laughs> Because I think they would be pretty clear on where I stand that, you know, it's past due. So I am just thrilled and excited uh, to have a Black woman even nominated. Um, but I have to tell you, probably like a lot of Black Americans, I'm holding my breath. Because we know that nothing is ever a sure thing when it comes to us and recognition and elevation and particularly in the um, atmosphere of what our government has been going through in the past few years. But I'm thoroughly, extremely proud of just seeing her face there, um, the litany of her accomplishments, uh, especially when they named them in contrast to past Supreme Court justices or approved ones, some who are sitting on the bench now. I am immensely proud and I love seeing the conversations happening where, as we always do, Black women cheering each other on and also in community, communities of color, being able to see um, our accomplishments modeled before us, being able to point her out to my sons. So I am immensely proud, no matter which way this goes, of our community, and I hope that at the end of this, we can also be proud of our, our nation. And as of, you know, because, you know, your mom is Japanese. Um, mm -hmm. So so you are, you could equally say you are Japanese or you could say that, you know, you're black. Um, I know you, you appear black, so, mm -hmm. you know, it would be harder for you to, mm -hmm. to, to, for people to understand that. You would have to explain yourself mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. um, I was looking at a graphic this morning that shows, you know, in the I guess, 233 years or whatever, there have been um, all white men, two mm -hmm. black men, one Hispanic woman, and now we have uh, uh, a nominee who's a black woman. But it was interesting what uh, jumped out at me is who else has not been mm. um, nominated? What What do you think about that? Or do you think, you know, one, one first things first? Or what, what are your thoughts on that? You know, I think that as far as race goes in America, and of course, Supreme, the Supreme Court is a quintessential bedrock of uh, United States executive uh you know, ex well, combination of executive branch power to appoint or to um, nominate and then legislative branch of in order to uh, decipher the, the laws. Right. And so when I think about specifically the history in the United States um, and I think about even where we are now, such a core part of our history is rooted in anti-blackness. 
And so to me, I think about, and as you said, I present as black wherever I go. And I have two black boys who I'm raising that, and we know what's happened at least more visibly across the United States in just the last few years is that a lot of the violence that we experience as black people and under the color of law has been something that continues. So I just see this as such a powerful and important stake in the ground to have a black woman uh, on the bench, not only nominated, but hopefully on the bench, because I think historically about who has really waved the flag of um, protecting the black community and black equity, and it's been black women. Um, And this isn't to have disregard for black men, but I think about us uh, protecting our, you know, our sons or husbands or fathers and uh, really carrying so much of the uh, intersectional disparity that I cannot help but be really proud and think about, wow, this is an important stake in the ground in terms of having a black woman uh, nominated and on that bench. Right. And and I think that and I've had other uh, guests. One in particular was Mia Yamamoto, who is a, a transsexual uh, woman, lawyer, civil rights lawyer, who over and over, and she was born in a concentration camp. Um, and she over and over on our, on, during our conversation, kept going back to civil rights era, the Black struggle, and how um, everything that black black folks have been through and have done has paved the way um, for for everyone else. Absolutely, um, and I am a believer of that. I even think that you know so much. Even when we think about racism overall, if we're thinking about racism towards um, Asian, you know, Hispanic, Latino. It, the the anchor point is anti blackness, and then as you're on that continuum from blackness and your proximity to whiteness, do you gain more, you know, authority in this nation and more access and privilege to power? So if we start with this root area of where I think there's the greatest disparity disparity across almost every marker of success, it's about, you know, it's anti-blackness, it's blackness versus being white. So if we think about incarceration rate, infant or child mortality rate, uh, education, wealth, all of those. I mean, the one salient feature is race and explicitly you can look between being black and being white. And then there's the in-between. So I, and, and just our history itself. So I am very much um, in agreement with what Yuri stated. And of course the, the, the movement in terms of getting access has so much to do with the, um, the fight of, Black folks in the United States to gain rate, gain rights, whereas we haven't always been the primary beneficiaries of those, you know, of that fight. Right. So one of the things when we were talking about your um, your company, Rare Coaching and Consulting, mm-hmm. um, one of the things that you uh, said to me was that there's something called leadership competency. Mm-hmm. And that really resonated with me. And, and we were talking about leadership in companies around um, diversity and inclusion and belonging. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that mean? What is leadership competency? You know what, Merle? I wasn't even going to correct you on this. So I'm glad you circled back. So when people tell me or designate me as a DE, diversity, equity, inclusion uh, specialist or consultant, <clears throat> 
I often correct them and say, actually, I'm just a leadership development coach. I'm a leadership develop. My uh, rare coaching and consulting is a leadership development firm because the same skill sets that it takes to be able to foster, nurture, sustain a diverse, equitable and inclusive workplace or team, they're the exact same skills that it takes to be a leader. So now we have this term that's called that people say call inclusive leadership. And I wonder to myself, I always ask my clients, is there any other such thing as is there such thing as a leader who isn't inclusive? How could you call somebody a leader when they're if they're saying I'm not ready to have conversations around equity? How are you a leader of an organization or a team, especially today? And the competencies that we have always had to be a leader are the same ones. So we think about effective communication, right? Being aware of who you're communicating to, understanding how you're showing up and the impact you're having, being aware of the language you're using and how it's going to land on others. So that degree of self-awareness, that's always been important. Emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence has always been important for leaders. The difference now is that uh, leaders of the past only had to think about um, emotionally relating to others who looked like them because mainly the folks who were in the room of leadership all looked the same. The folks who were they were accountable to looked very much like them as well. So it's very homogenous. So the depth and breadth of your emotional intelligence skills was pretty shallow and limited. But now the people who are in the room look different from you, which means that you need to level up in terms of your self-awareness and your ability to connect with others. The people who are holding you accountable are people you may never meet. So we all have heard of Black Twitter. You've heard of Instagram, all the social media that is really active in holding companies and leaders accountable. People they'll never meet, right, are holding them accountable. So that expectation in terms of the breadth and depth of your emotional intelligence, it's leveled up. And it's the same skill set, but leaders need to understand how to how to anchor themselves in le- leveling up so that they see more than people who look like them. They're able to communicate better with people in terms of the breadth of people who don't look like them or don't have the same, aren't from the same walk of life and background. So what we're doing is we're using the same uh, leadership competencies, but we're asking people to level them up. And similarly, when we think about wanting needing leaders to create spaces of innovation or creativity, that's not new. What's new now is that we understand based on empirical data that they that diversity and inclusion are keys to that. And not diversity in terms of everybody having um, different ways of thinking, but those those uh, studies are based on gender, race, and ethnicity. So you need to be able to foster and sustain teams that are racially diverse and gender diverse to be able to create innovation and creativity. So exact same leadership competencies that we've always looked at and required, except we need leaders to now level up because the workforce looks different. The accountability so, is different. Why Why is that scary for people? I, I know that it's frightening and I, I have to, I have to imagine that um, you have 
you know, dealt with clients and I mean, at least they're, they've come to you and they're willing to work on it. And it's almost like being an alcoholic, right. And saying, uh, you know, <laughs> recognizing that you are an alcoholic and so you, you need help. Right. So that, I mean, that's, that's the first step. Um, so I applaud those people who are doing that and going to you, um, for that, to do that work. But when you talk to them, I mean, do you get a sense for for why it's it's so hard? Why why it's actually scary and can actually paralyze people? Yeah, sure. Um, I don't think any of this will surprise <laughs> you. I mean, it's a uh, you know I call it having a learner mindset, and part of that includes one being willing to be wrong, even in public, and understand your when you're learning you already have the presumption that you don't know everything, which means that you're going to be wrong sometimes. And that's a vulnerable situation to be in. I, I use Brene's, uh, Dr. Brene Brown's definition of vulnerability when we talk about um, risk, uncertainty, and emotional exposure. So there's uncertainty as a leader to be able to tell people publicly, I don't know the answer. I'm learning or I'm wrong or I got it wrong. And you know, traditionally, leadership in the U.S. has often meant having all the answers and being a knower. But now leadership is so much more dynamic and being willing, willing to say, I don't know, and to lean on others to teach you. So being able to be the learner rather than always the knower and the teacher. And it takes vulnerability to do that, to say, I don't know. And the other part is when you start digging into doing this work, if you're not doing it in this transactional way where, oh, I'm going to learn all the right words to say and I'm going to avoid all those bad words that I shouldn't say. Or when you're understanding more instead of saying, hey, we're all going to go to a training on unconscious bias, instead taking accountability that my behaviors are going to shift. When you do that type of work, I consider that to be transformational work because one, you have to be intrinsically motivated because you're going to self-interrogate, understand your own values, understand the stories you've been taught that you've believed that you might be kind of embarrassed of now. So when you do that type of work, uh, when I when I do this work with leaders, it's hard work because they may end up saying, you know what, my kids can't go to that person's house anymore because I don't like when they're saying that word all the time or some of the things that they're teaching my kids. I'm going to have to have a conversation with my grandmother because she says this thing around my kids that isn't okay. I mean, it can lead to some disruption in our personal lives. It also means us owning or some people owning that they used to say a word all the way up to yesterday that wasn't a good word to say. So there's this degree of self-reflection that can really be painful and be laced with shame and also decisions you have to make around your holistic life. So these conversations might come up in the workplace to become better leaders. If you're doing it in a transformational way, it is going to disrupt your personal life too in ways that you may not be prepared for. It, it's funny that you say that. And I, you've said a couple of things, actually starting with the fact that you have two black boys um, that, and I, I keep thinking, should I bring this up or not? Um, and, you know, I, I will tell you something happened this weekend. My daughter 
took my grandsons to a a, a park um, that's you know pretty much in our our neighborhood, which is prim primarily you know it's an upper middle class black neighborhood. Um, and uh, she called my husband afterwards and said, "Daddy, you're not going to believe this. I was just at this park with the boys." And a little boy who's about four, who or looked to be about four, who was at a birthday party, and this little boy was Asian, um, said to our grandsons, "No black people here." <gasps> oh. And my daughter and our our grandsons don't even, you know, they don't even talk yet. So, but my daughter said what did you say? And he said, no black people here. And she said, well, who can be here? And he said, white people only. And she said, but you're not white. And he said, yes, I am. Yeah. And she said, no, you're not white. And he said, yes, I am. And she just said to one of the bigger kids, Will you come talk to him and explain to him why he can't say that anymore? Um, and you know, and she was devastated. This was her first, you know, her first experience um, with her sons, right? And they're not even two yet. Mm -hmm. um, and you, so, you know, when you said that people have, and, and we just said, look, you know, he heard that somewhere mm -hmm. at mm -hmm. home or at school or at a friend's house or something. But but what you just said about, you know, how these things can affect you and you have to change at home, you have to change everywhere. That really resonated with me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, Merle, like during uh, COVID, people, you know, companies had to take down that great facade of acting like the workplace was in a vacuum where what was happening in people's everyday lives or out in the nation didn't seep into the workplace. And it's the same in terms of a leader. How can you be a stand-up leader at work and a person who's so equitable and fair, but at home you're using language, excluding folks, going to a house of worship are places where it's teaching exact same message or modeling exact different behavior. It's not possible. It's not possible. Right. Right. So, okay. So talk to us about rear coaching and consulting. What you said to me and I, and I circled this was you got that you're defining success on your own terms, success on your own terms. Talk to us about your company. So uh, we actually, one thing that's important that's a marker for us is that all of our facilitators, all of our coaches, they're all people of color. <laughs> and that's very unique for any type of leadership development firm. In fact, when we have a survey, when we put the survey out, most people, be you white, black, whatever body you're in, have not had many opportunities to receive executive coaching or even professional leadership development in a professional forum, their workplace, from a person of color. So that tells you a lot about who gets to set the standard of what a leader looks like and how leadership is actually 
shows up in the workplace. So this was very important to me to make sure that we took some of those filters off in terms of when people are being coached and when they're able to be coached by someone who looks like them as a person of color so that you don't have to explain again what it means to be in this body and the skin in a workplace. Because what I found was that oftentimes clients of color who came to us had been re-traumatized by somebody who was an executive coach. So when they're naming differentiated behavior that they experienced, the coach, instead of staying in their lane as an executive coach, asks them, are you sure? Are you sure that was racist? Do you think that's what really happened? And the same for women who come to us for coaching, having been already traumatized by someone either as an executive coach or an HR team member, when they've explained something that happened that came, that was sexist or even on the uh, pretty much on that board of sexual harassment, the executive coach who's a male saying, are you sure? So one thing I wanted to make sure of is that the people who were providing leadership development and executive coaching could have a coaching alliance with their clients where they weren't going to be re-traumatized in this way, but instead they're being believed, period. The other part is that for people who are seeking leadership development who might be white, who might be male, for them to be able to get the benefit of having their own emotional intelligence and perspective of the world pushed and expanded so that they're introduced to different possibilities and ways of being. And we already know that your perspective on what a professional and expert, a leadership expert is, is going to be challenged by having someone across from you who's a person of color. And that's one thing that I really wanted to present as a disruptor in this field of leadership development. And oftentimes by the time many of our, our clients come to us when they're in the doldrums, regardless if they're black, brown, white, or whatever, but something's not quite right in my my professional space, and I want something to be better. So in the doldrums, we mean that you're just in this space where things can be kind of blah. You're not fully satisfied. You don't know what's happening. And what we often find is that there's a gap between their values as a person and where they might be spending most of their time. And that's often in the workplace. And we find that they've been going on this trajectory of checking the box of who they're supposed to be, what success means based on other people's terms, be that their family of origin or society, and they're left unfulfilled. So one thing we want to make sure we're always creating a clearing for, for people to be able to define success on their own terms. And sometimes for some leaders, maybe they're in the position that they desire to be in or in even the workplace they desire to be in, but they haven't had an opportunity to show up without assimilating, code switching, or covering. And we as executive coaches support them and understand what does that mean for them to show up fully as themselves or in their own values and to have agency around defining what type of leader they want to be and setting and holding boundaries. And that, that's amazing and it's inspiring, but what if, so you have a person who does that work, uh, you know, cause really that's around authenticity, right? And you and, and they do that work, but they still are in the same company, 
Um, and how, how do you, how do they present that way in the same company? I, you know, that, that's, how does that work? So there's a lot of different ways that this uh, path that this can go on. One is that sometimes people decide, you know what, this isn't the place for me. And sometimes you have it so that they're pushing back on the system. Sometimes they may be pleasantly surprised that, wow, the system actually wasn't pushing back on me, but I was defaulting to the behaviors I thought I was supposed to show up on um, or show up with. And as executive coaches, sometimes we have an opportunity to meet with managers, HR teams, and we're in a space where we're able to hold them accountable for the type of pressure or messaging that they're giving to their leaders. Because many of these organizations that they're paying for the executive coaching for their leaders, they want to be aware of why do we have a low retention weight for women or people of color or LGBT members? And we're partly the voice in that. And for us to be able to say, hey, we've already coached X number of leaders in our organization, and this is a practice and pattern. And this is why maybe one of the reasons you can't retain this category of talent. Got it. Got it. So important. So very important. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you also, let's, let's talk about something a little bit more fun. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. That, that, that's upbeat. And, and I can talk about it. I mean, that's, that's fun <laughs> because I could talk about it all day, but mm -hmm. you also are an author and for something called cozy comfort book. <laughs> yes. Okay. So yes. Um, so I write a lot of nonfiction about leadership and identity, but yes, uh, something that happened for me during COVID is that, you know, we were all looking for a little bit of escapism. So I would go on these walks every day and listen to these books that are in this genre called cozy comforts. So cozy comforts are kind of like formula fiction. And if those of you have watched or listened to watched uh, Murder, She Wrote, you kind of know what this already is. There's a female protagonist. She's unencumbered in the sense that she's usually not married, usually doesn't have kids, although she might have a romantic interest. And she's usually an entrepreneur. So she is maybe a, an author or she owns her own coffee shop, bookstore, whatever. Detective. Right, right. And she's also usually a busybody. Now, frankly, right. Merle, I will tell you in retrospect, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is the formula for what people nowadays might even call somebody who's a Karen. <laughs> because yeah. the leader, the, the protagonist was always, a, is usually a white woman. But the great yeah. thing about these books is also that the community becomes a part of the character. And I would read, listen to these books on and on, and I'd be like, darn, I just wish that they had some folks of color, some black folks who were main characters. Because whenever we popped up in these books, it was more like we were an accessory in the book versus a centered character. And I thought, you know what? Why am I waiting for that to happen? I should write it myself. Okay. So, I am writing a series, Magnolia Murder Series, about um, these uh, characters are mainly millennials, and they are people of color and they're a community. And it's all the themes, Merle, that I think meant that will be familiar to you and I, like the fact that you can have a chosen family, 
and community. And sometimes we have extended family who may not be family by blood and that we have acceptance in all these different spaces that we can create and curate ourselves. So there's this idea of defining success on your own terms because the main character is a recovering attorney that you and I can really relate to. Absolutely. <laughs> um, her best friend is uh, somebody who dropped out of being a doctor and ended up owning her own business. So both of these characters have their own businesses. And the idea is also showing that Black people and people of color were not a monolith. So one of the main characters, she's, you know, multi-generation um college educated. Her father's been a CFO at many companies. And that's something that a lot of people aren't used to running into. And also the idea that we don't always live in trauma. <laughs> so one of the right. things we do know is that many stories about us are about us being steeped in trauma versus the joy that we experience every day versus the brilliance and success that we exude in the world every day. And I wanted to really center that because it is past time for us to exist in our own imaginations and for us to world build, like building these worlds, not in the future in terms of Afrofuturism and having superpowers, but here and now about yeah. how we are defining success on our own terms, living with joy, living in success and brilliance and modeling that. And that's not only important for us to see in our own escapism and beach reads, but also for others who don't look like us to see. So that proximity to our own humanity, that proximity is closed. And the biggest part about these, this series of books is really, um, it's really about the reader's guide and the reader's guide that is not only for us in community who are people of color to be able to really flesh out why do we, you know, why would we not define success in our own terms? What holds us back? What are these systems we're navigating? What can we do differently to walk fully in joy and success on our own terms and agency? But the Reader's Guide is also about other folks who may not understand uh, really even the barriers they put up for us. So like things like the Crown Act, there was this one scene where the main character named Tamika is looking in the mirror and she just has this one second where she says, no more weaves no more perms, no more, you know, she's just glad to have her own natural hair. It's this one little, it's probably three sentences in the book, but every right. one of us, Merle, you and me, black girls, <laughs> that's going to resonate so much. But for somebody else who that doesn't, re doesn't resonate with, when they go through the reader's guide and discussion guide, they have that link to go look at the crown act and to understand why this is important to us. That means that that's instead awesome. of somebody touching your hair, Merle, and saying, can I touch your hair? They're able to look at this fictional character and educate themselves versus us real life people having to invest emotional energy to educate them. So it's this great forum for people to do their own work and for us to see ourselves modeled in joy and success on our own terms. I love that. I love, I love, I would actually see, I would read that. I, I'm one of these people, people ask me, you know, have you read this black author or that black author or this book or that book? And I just, I say no. And, and the real reason is because I like fiction. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I need to be able to escape and, and I don't want to see another movie about yes. enslavement. Yes. Um, I don't want to see another movie about, you know, 
uh, gangs and drugs and, you know, I, I just, I can't do it. I, I just can't do it. And, you know, I have a daughter who is a writer for TV. Um, and, you know, part of, you know, and she's doing well, but part of her struggle is, you know, that what, what they're looking for is more of the same. Um, instead of, you know, recognizing, like you said, that black folks are not a monolith and that, you know, we just live regular lives like everybody else. Um, and, and those are stories, you know, that, that could be called, you, you could substitute a black, a black person in almost any show and it would be true. Um, but, you know, we, so we, we need more of that. And I'm really, I can't wait. When is it going to be out? So we will start pre-sales in March, um, but the site will be up soon because we're going to drop a lot of vignettes uh, for the backstories of the characters. And people will be able to look at those at um, icopathea.com. That is so exciting. It's, it's, I'll have to hook you up with my daughter. Maybe she can turn them into a TV show or something. <laughs> well, we had a little ask from Hallmark. So I am, I've got my fingers crossed because I'm like to have it on screen would just help the concept scale even faster. That is amazing. So we're almost at the end of our, of, of our time here. I've, I've just, you know, kind of gotten lost in, in our conversation <laughs> I mean, your, your voice is so methodical and it's so soothing. Um, I really see how you would be um, superb at, at what you do. And, and I truly believe that you found your calling in, in coaching and consulting. Um, I, wish, I wish you would, would coach me because, uh, boy, could I use it, let me tell you. Um, but... You know, let let me let me ask you this: Is there any like any last um, uh, joy? You know, thing that thing that you want to 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 put out there, words of wisdom. You know, something that you feel encouragement for for folks to find their joy and and pursue their authenticity. You know, I um, there's a big movement now that we talk about a lot, which is about self care. And I would love to just challenge people instead of thinking so much about the uh, the, the uh, limitation of how we talk about self-care to think about it as wellness and wholeness and wellness being that we're not just talking about going and exercise and yoga and spa treatments, but we're thinking about wellness in terms of living into our purpose, challenging ourselves leaning into community and the things that are important to us. And to me, that's really holistic wellness, knowing that even though we at moments will be tired, that we're thriving. So understanding that we're moving towards not just surviving, but thriving, not just coping, but thriving. And self-care, the self-care movement talks about things in such a temporary way of like, go travel, go take a, have a bubble bath. Instead of really thinking, once you take that bath, all the issues of the world are still there. Yeah. So how do you lean into wellness and walking into your purpose, honoring your values, being willing to take risks for your long-term health and legacy, instead of thinking about the temporary. And what that means, though, Merle, is that we have to be willing to get off of the hamster wheel of toxic productivity 
and just doing something every second, doing, 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 but not knowing to what ends. And also letting go of perfectionism and trying to reach standards that are impossible. And according to whom? Who's setting these standards and creating our own standards and honoring them? I love that. I, I absolutely love that. And and so how do people reach you if somebody wants to hire or get or get a proposal from your company or have a consultation uh, about hiring you? How do they reach you? So they'll find us on the web, of course, rarecoaching.net, rare as an art, A-R-E, and on Instagram at rare underscore coach. And we're super active on LinkedIn. So, and we're always on podcasts, keynotes, but I really hope that people do tap into our wonderful bench of coaches, executive coaches and companies consider how they can actually sow into their leaders and also the sustainability of their leaders of color by investing in their professional development and their well-being. Here, here. <laughs> this has been so wonderful. Um, thanks. Thank you for having uh, me, Merle. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for being here to BS with me today. I hope you've enjoyed it. I certainly have. And thanks to everyone for listening. And until the next episode, remember that everybody is different and different is good. Hit it. That's what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay, now, from the beginning. We hope you enjoyed the stories shared in today's episode of BS, Beyond Stereotypes. Join us next time when another authentic personality unleashes their uniqueness on the world.